Welcome to Canada's History's Stories Behind the History podcast. I'm Kate Jamet, Senior Editor of Canada's History magazine. And in this podcast, we take a deeper look at some of the stories in our award-winning print publication. The year 2023 marks the 70th anniversary of the Korean War Armistice. In our August-September issue, we feature a story about Canadian military involvement in the Korean War. To speak with me today about Canada's military role on the Korean Peninsula, both during and after the war, I'm joined by General Wayne Eyre. General Eyre is the Canadian Armed Forces Chief of the Defence Staff, and he served from 2018 to 2019 as Deputy Commander of the United Nations Command in Korea. General Eyre, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Kate. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm actually in Korea right now as we uh, as we record this uh, podcast, so it is very poignant as we uh, as we uh, go through and discuss uh, what happened 70 years ago. Excellent. And I'd also like to welcome Andrew Birch to the podcast. Andrew Birch is the Canadian War Museum's post-1945 historian, and he is an adjunct research professor of history at Carleton University. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have a chance to chat about this uh, important chapter in Canadian military history. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting both of your insights uh, from a historical point of view and from a military point of view. So this will be really interesting. Uh, so just to bring our readers a bit up to speed, uh, the Korean War broke out in 1950, and that was only five years after the end of the Second World War. So Andrew, as a historian, maybe you could give us a brief overview of the situation on the Korean Peninsula at the end of the Second World War, and how did that lead up to the Korean War? Right. Well, the situation on the Korean Peninsula uh, at the end of the Second World War uh, really was should have been cause for celebration because the uh, the Japanese Empire had had uh, collapsed as a result of the um, the uh, war, uh, the Second World War in the Pacific, and the surrender of the uh, Japanese Empire included uh, the surrender of its of its territories, which had included uh, Korea, which they had annexed in uh, in 1910. Uh, and the occupation of Korea is a very uh, by Japan is a very uh, dark chapter in the history of the long history of uh, of Korea, and uh, the hopes on the peninsula at that time uh, were that it would uh, perhaps herald in a, a resumption of Korean independence. Uh, but really, the the Korean War is is essentially a, an outcome or or result of. Uh, disagreement and international politics over what that independence might look like, uh, influenced um, importantly by the, the way in which the post-occupation uh, was uh, regulated by the entry of the Soviet Union uh, into uh, occupying the north of Korea, divided at the 38th parallel, while south of the 38th parallel, the United States uh, had uh, forces uh, positioned there. And in the five years that followed, um, leading up to the uh, the Korean War, there were a number of discussions that were held, uh, uh, I will say you know, fruitless discussions, over a peaceful reunification and independence uh, that would have really depended on a single vision for uh, what an independent Korea might look like. Uh, this was, of course, affected by the ongoing uh, perceptions of Korea and its relationship to China and uh, the Chinese Civil War, which was ongoing up until uh, 1949. Uh, and after the Soviets uh, declined to uh, uh, observe the results of like a UN uh, um, 
commission essentially that was looking at reunification, uh, the Americans went ahead and, and uh, launched an independent uh, election in the South uh, that was not pursued by anything similar in the North. And so that was basically taken as a de facto uh, proclamation of, of the Republic of South Korea. So they had an election in the South and elected a, a premier or a president. Is that correct? The Koreans did? Yeah, the, the president of, uh, of, South, of South Korea was uh, Syngman Rhee, who was uh, obviously a, a nationalist. Uh, they were all, both uh, nationalists, uh, both leaders of North and South Korea, but with, albeit with very different visions. And important for the, Amer- uh, for the Americans and, and, and very important for the future of, of South Korea, he was uh, staunchly anti-communist. And uh, the election that went ahead was really about, uh, that did solidify his power, although it was contested, uh, very heavily. There were leftist groups in, in South Korea and, uh, who were, uh, not in favor of the election, who, uh, you know, had opposing views. And, and there was a bit more of a diversity of views in South Korea than there was in North Korea for obvious reasons, as the Soviets had, uh, had basically supported uh, Kim Il-sung, the uh, grandfather of the um, uh, the present uh, leader of North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, to to come to power. And he was a former Red Army officer who operated in Manchuria with, uh, with uh, other Koreans uh, who were in Manchuria as part of the Red Army, and they supported him. So essentially, uh, between North and South Korea, parallel systems both uh, emerged both opposed to each other ideologically and uh, ultimately militarily. Uh, and it was in part because of the unrest in the South, which was uh, perhaps less uh, less stable in large part because of uh, the uh, destabilization and uh, the, the challenge, there's economic challenges and other things happening in South Korea, uh, that it was that the uh, North Korean leader, uh, Kim Il-sung, thought and proposed to Stalin, leader of the Soviet Union, uh, that... Uh, South Korea would be a pushover, that the Americans would not uh, would not defend South Korea, and that they could take Seoul in days and be able to reunify the uh, peninsula by force and resolve that area of the early Cold War uh, by force of arms. And uh, the when the uh, United States and the South Koreans uh, didn't bend uh, as far as, as uh, and break as he expected they would, uh, that's what resulted in the following three years of war. So the North actually did then invade the South. Can you just sort of clarify that point? Oh, yes. So the North did invade the South on the 25th of June, uh, 1950, uh, after securing uh, material support uh, from the Soviet Union. They uh, did so uh, not for free. The Soviets extracted a fairly hefty uh, loan uh, or or guarantees of loan and mineral rights and all sorts of things from North Korea to to support them. And they also had tacit uh, uh, approval, if not um, full-on support from the, uh, the newly uh, communist uh, leadership of China, uh, which allowed, gave them the security to to push ahead. And in 25th June 1950, they crossed the, the border uh, on the pretext that the South had, had started a, a shooting war, uh, which of course was not true. And they very quickly had very, he- very quickly had uh, a sizable amount of success in pushing South. And uh, it could very well have been a very different view of the peninsula had there not been rapid steps taken to uh, uh, you know, hold that line um, that eventually emerged in the very south of the peninsula, the uh, the perimeter around Busan, uh, which is uh, not not too far from where uh, General Air is, is sitting today. Okay, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that for a second because um, we'll get back to the flow of events. But on a on a sort of bigger level, uh, looking back, and I don't know if General Air, if you want to 
put an opinion on this too. But do you think that this was a conflict between ideologies within Korea? Or was it a was it a Cold War conflict that was essentially driven by Russia and the US with their and sort of fighting by proxy over this peninsula? Or was it kind of a bit of both? Or, or how do you see that in the big picture? The short answer is is yes, that there is definitely something akin to a civil war, especially in South Korea, uh, as there were there were infiltrators from from North Korea. There were also um, domestic uh, movements sympathetic to North Korea, des- desirous of reunification, uh, and the uh, the treatment and and how those movements were suppressed is a matter of discussion uh, now in in Korea as as uh, as it was then. As there was, you know, there were elections. There were also violence surrounding those elections. There was, it was not necessarily a peaceful disagreement in the south, and the suppression of of uh, that discontent uh, was uh, something like a second front uh, in South Korea, leading up to the war and in early into the war uh, was a, was a component of it. Uh, and of course, uh, both the the forces in South Korea and the United States would would paint this as, you know clear North Korean or, or more likely Soviet uh, maneuvers uh, to secure yet another uh, front in, in East Asia. And uh, likewise, uh, I think even to this day, the North Koreans refer to the, uh, the South Korean government as a puppet government of the United States. And so everything that the South Koreans are doing is being characterized as, you know, uh, something that is uh, alien perhaps to their nature. And if things were uh, were regulated properly, they would they would be on the side of the North Koreans. And I think that's in, in part because this is a very difficult, uh, you know, culturally, it's a very difficult situation because uh, these are our brothers and sisters uh, of, of, of Korea who, you know, the, the goal is the same. I think that there was the goal of, of reunifying Korea after years and years, decades of, of occupation and suppression of the culture uh, under the under the Japanese. And there was a great deal of, of uh, uh, discontent over, over what direction that could take uh, that bubbled over in a variety of ways. So there was, there was definitely the flavor of the, uh, the, the Cold War and the greater gamesmanship, I suppose you could say, in the region was definitely a factor. Uh, but uh, you can't discount the, the actual primary domestic uh, movers, which were the local uh, and, and national ambitions of those in power in both the North and the South and the movements that were sympathetic uh, or hostile to each. I agree with Andrew. It was, it was a bit of both. It was a, a case of um, you know, deciding which direction the country would take, and it morphed into uh, into a proxy war. But you have to remember that uh, Kim Il-sung um, had a masterful ability to manipulate both uh, – uh, China, Communist China, and uh, and the Soviet Union, and he did so at the beginning of the war to get both of them to uh, to support uh, his invasion of the South. You know, and likewise, um, the the U.S. in particular and the West came to realize that this was a line in the sand uh, against the expansion of uh, of communism. But Singren Ri as well was able to uh, to extract and and influence uh, the uh, the Western involvement in in the Korean War. Hmm. So this is a good segue to talk about how did Canada then get involved in this war? Well, I might uh, I might start off, and uh, by all means, uh, General Air, if you uh, if you want to fill in on the back end, uh, by all means, do so. the uh, The Canadian government was uh, did not have a sizable investment or even real understanding of Korea. There was no diplomatic uh, representation in Korea. The uh, to the extent that there was, they were actually Canadian missionaries uh, who had 
had a presence in Korea through the through the occupation as well. And there's uh, actually a great deal of uh, goodwill uh, in regard to those those figures who even in Korea today who maintain that presence. But that was the extent of our, our diplomatic and, and presence. Uh, uh, so there was not um, uh, not a lot of understanding or knowledge on the ground. It was kind of seen as a bit of the Americans backyard. Uh, in Canada, but when the invasion happened, it was it was an emergency, and one of the reasons why uh, was that there was an appeal um, not just to the United States but to the United Nations. And so soon after the signature of the uh, into uh, uh, putting into effect the United Nations and creating the membership of which Canada was an active and and quite interested partner, uh, paired with the um, the spirit of the time, which was seeing this as part of the larger uh, threat of, of communist conquest. You have to recall that at this time, the uh, Czech uh, coup had taken place in Czechoslovakia, uh, that there had been the, uh, the this quote unquote fall of China after uh, after the nationalists uh, in that, fought, in that uh, war lost. Uh, there had been the Berlin airlift uh, and the creation of, of NATO among other things. So the, the desire for collective action and the rationale to support the, in the United Nations when an appeal to condemn uh, the invasion took place uh, was was persuasive, and I think Canada, as a member of the United Nations and a signatory, uh, was uh, I won't say eager, but did feel obliged to uh, to respond, uh, and that response took shape in different forms over time, and and with a different um, uh, level of enthusiasm that depended on how dire the situation was in Korea, uh, which it it became very dire indeed over the course of that summer. But the initial response was largely one of principle, which was to say that, you know, here's something that what, what do the Americans need? What does the United Nations need? And how can we best support uh, so, you know, support our allies in the United Nations, if not necessarily uh, Korea in its own right at that time? I think it's also important to note that uh, this entailed a pretty significant mobilization on Canada's part because our, our military uh after the uh, after the end of the Second World War, was was rapidly demobilized. It was it was very small. I think we had three active infantry battalions at that time, and so when Canada decided to uh, to become a, a part of the Allied effort, the United Nations effort to uh, to save uh, Korea, um, we had to or we formed what was called the Special Force, and that assembled. Uh, it was a brigade. Um, it initially assembled and started its training in Fort Lewis, Washington. The first battalion uh, of that uh, that brigade was sent over. Um, it was the second battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Um, they were lacking training. Uh, many were Second World War veterans, but not all, and they didn't have a time, didn't have sufficient time to acclimatize to uh, to get ready. And consequently, when that first battalion landed in Korea, its commander, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jim Stone, or Big Jim, as uh, as his troops called him, uh, told the American commander uh, of the Eighth Army, Ridgeway, said, who was very keen that the that the uh, Canadian battalion get into the uh, the fight as quickly as possible. Uh, Colonel Stone said, no, we need time to train. We, we want to make sure our troops are ready before we put them into the meat grinder. And, you know, at the right at the front end of Canada's involvement in the Korean War, that is a key lesson that we can take forward to uh, to today. Don't be too keen to get in the fight before you're ready. That's so interesting. And if I can just pick up a little bit on the soldiers who went over General Air, because one of the things that uh, really, t- I guess, touched me in a way when I started reading about this was the 
uh, Second World War soldiers who you would think they had already served their country. I mean, they had already, you know, put their lives on the line. And yet there they are going again to Korea. Were these soldiers who volunteered for this deployment or were they just they were part of the battalion? So they were professional soldiers. So that's where they were sent. So the first rotation, uh, 1951 to 1952, uh, they were raised from volunteers. Um, they were, like I said, many uh, many Second World, Second World War veterans, but also many um, who missed the Second World War. Uh, they were too young, but still wanted to, to be part of it. So yes, they were all volunteers coming in from uh, civilian life. It was a second rotation, um, the 1952 to, uh, uh, to 53, that... Uh, that were the professional soldiers. Uh, they were the first battalions of each of our three regiments. Uh, they were already serving and um, and already trained, but all of them uh, were volunteers as well uh, because many of them had the choice. The interesting thing too about that Canadian Army Special Force, which uh, does is this really core chapter of the Korean uh, Canadian effort in Korea, uh, is that it's. In, in some ways is is uh, the second force to arrive, the first one being the Navy, which was deployed first. Three Canadian ships were sent uh, immediately. Some of those were taking part in coastal activities off the coast when uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur was uh, launching the uh, the landing at Incheon. Uh, they were doing screening of, of that invasion force. They weren't directly involved in that uh, amphibious landing, uh, but they were there off the coast. They were protecting uh, other ships. They were engaging in bombardment activities, all of that. But the, the fact was that the situation in Korea into the summer of the Korean War, the first summer heading into the fall and before the landing at Incheon, the, the uh, South Korean forces and the American forces, uh, before any major reinforcements arrived from the United Nations, were embattled in this very tiny pocket of, uh, of hillsides around uh, the southernmost port of Busan. And it really looked to, you know, if you look at a map, it kind of looked like the uh, North Koreans had it wrapped up. And so in the context of that emergency, recruit or lose Korea, uh, the uh, Canadians launched this crash effort in August of 1950. That was when the Canadian Army Special Force uh, was put forward in large part to make sure that this was something specially recruited for Korea. It's not a standing commitment from the armed forces. The Canadian government had other plans for the armed forces. They were keeping an anxious eye on Europe, as well as the, uh, as, as General Lair mentioned, there was the, the numbers that were available as part of the permanent force were relatively low still. Uh, so this ramping up that we see later in the Cold War had not yet happened, but this was in a way kind of the start of it. And as, as you said, there are people who were, uh, you know, had gone back to civilian life, Missed the camaraderie uh, of the Second World War uh, of the of their fellow troops, or you know, weren't weren't uh, didn't have their attention held by some of the civilian jobs and uh, resource extraction, you know, working in lumber camps, these sorts of things, and they they wanted that sense of adventure back. And quite a few people, including some of the veterans who are uh, who are still with us, uh, you know, like in pre- previous wars, uh, lied about their age in order to get out and, and see the world. And Korea represented an adventure, a chance to go where their uh, brothers and, and fathers, perhaps before them, had gone and they were just not uh, old enough yet to uh, to join. Uh, but by the time they were uh, trained at Fort Lewis and aboard the uh, the uh, Joe Martinez, the, uh, the troop ship that took them across, the situation on the ground had, by that time had, had changed considerably. The landing at Incheon had happened. The uh, North Korean lines were cut and they were in disarray. There were 
collapsing back towards the uh, uh, towards the 38th parallel and subsequently to the Chinese border. And so, so some uh, speculation among the cabinet uh, at the time that the Canadians were about to land in Busan was like, oh, well, maybe they'll they'll just be in garrison duty and we can bring them home soon. But at that time is also when the uh, the um, uh, Chinese government, rather than see the uh, North Koreans fail completely and uh, have a hostile camp on its uh, on its southern border, uh, decided to intervene uh, massively in the war. And that's really uh, in the context of that, those first Chinese offensives is really when the Canadians start to arrive and they really get into the line after that period of training and get into the first series of, uh, of UN counteroffensives that, uh, you know, start to bring us to the equilibrium that we see when armistice negotiations take, begin to, uh, to roll out. So General Air, uh, once the, the Canadians get there, can you tell us a little bit about some of the important military actions they were involved in then? So there's a, a number of uh, important actions that happened uh, before the uh, the line stabilized. Um, probably the most uh, important one, or the uh, the most recognized one, is the Battle of Kapyong uh, in April of 1951, where uh, the Second Battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, along with a number of other Commonwealth forces and American uh, forces, were able to uh, to hold at Kapyong against a, a Chinese advance, which was pretty significant uh, because they were moving on Seoul and were able to stop that Chinese uh, advance uh, in its tracks. Um, but over the course of the next number of months, uh, that battalion advanced uh, north along with the rest of the uh, United Nations forces, and it stopped in the area of what was called the Jamestown Line. And over the course of the rest of the war, that's where most of the Canadian experience happened. Uh, and there were a number of notable, notable battles that happened uh, in that location. Uh, the Battle of, uh, of Hill 355 numerous times. Uh, the Battle of uh, Hill 187 in, uh, in May of 53. But this was really, and going to the experience of our troops, this was really a war of patrols as patrols were launched on a, on a nightly basis to, to move out, make contact with the the enemy lines uh, to continue to ensure that what was called no man's land, the, the area between the uh, the uh, front lines, uh, was dominated, uh, not allowing the enemy to uh, to have initiative. Uh, but it was a um, a, a constant uh, stress being in those front lines, uh, waiting for enemy attacks, uh, sporadic and sometimes concentrated artillery, um, and always on your toes. And was it similar in technology to the Second World War, like tanks and, and uh, plane fi fighter planes and that sort of thing? Or what sort of uh, military technology was going on there? Well, if, if I may, I would say that the, uh, the soldier of the Second World War would have definitely recognized the equipment uh, of the, uh, you know, uh, infantry platoon in and mortar platoon so on in in the uh in the korean war there was much of the same kit although there was upgrades to you know winter wear and and they changed a little bit over time especially the uh, introduction of of some anti-tank weapons uh the main the uh, tanks that were operating especially during the early phases were were sherman tanks uh american issued that that were uh uh were issued to uh, the canadians uh, armored when they when they arrived and uh the main difference in the air being that uh uh 
post Second World War had entered the jet age, and so there was a uh, conflict in the air between uh, MiG fighter jets that were uh, piloted by uh, by Soviet, uh, so not Soviet. <laughs> they they were they were kind of uh, concealing their identity a bit, but the probably Soviet pilots as well as uh, U.S. Air Force uh, pilots flying in Sabers. Uh, and there was an exchange program where there were uh, a number of Canadian uh, Sabre pilots who were flying uh, with U.S. forces and, and shooting down MiGs as part of the uh, battle over for air supremacy over, over North Korea. And uh, it was a battle that the United Nations won. The, the, uh, and the battle over firepower, the, the, uh, the UN always came out on top uh, at the end in terms of their ability to deliver fire on target. Uh, but yeah, so there were there was definitely a blend of the the uh, Second World War, but also heading into the Cold War and the new uh, advancements in technology uh, that you could see in the air. And uh, in terms of the scales of issue and nature of issue, there was a bit more uh, blending of you know old uh, Canadian British era equipment and the, uh, the the beginnings of more standardization and and uh, some adoption of of American equipment, official or uh, unofficial, <laughs> that were done uh, done in the lines with uh, between you know trades of equipment uh, by soldiers who were who were sharing uh, sharing parts of the line with the Americans on uh, on to their left or right, uh, in addition to being part of a Commonwealth. Uh, division, uh, so being with uh, British and Australian and New Zealand uh, troops, for example. So there's a there's a bit of a uh, cross pollination. I think that the really interesting thing for the post war period is that it was really a, a, a beginning of that kind of multinational cooperation and coalition operations uh, in play. That was a bit of a continuation of, of what had happened during the Second World War, but also moved towards a bit more coordination. And uh, you know, shared staffs and these sorts of things that uh, were quite important going forward in, in future uh, Cold War and, and uh, more modern operations. So they kind of have their roots to a certain extent in the Korean War. So I'd like to ask uh, both of you, General Air as a soldier and Andrew, you as a historian during your careers, if you've had the opportunity to speak to any or many Korean War veterans and if, if they've told you anything about their experiences and, and what really stands out for you from what you've been told from the Canadian Korean War veterans that you've had a chance to meet and speak to. Uh, well, I might, I might start just by saying that uh, through the course of my work at the War Museum and through, uh, I, I am part of a Korean War Commemorative Committee in, here in Ottawa, so I have the opportunity to meet with, uh, I have the pleasure of meeting with Korean War veterans on a semi-regular basis. Through my work at the museum, I've, I've of course, done a number of exhibitions uh, about uh, Canadians who served in Korea. Uh, we have an upcoming one in uh, in June that's going to carry that forward, and for that, we've, we've touched base with and worked with Korean War veterans to secure their stories as part of oral histories, uh, as part of collecting some of the material culture that they brought back with them. And the experience of, of the soldier in Korea is very different depending on when they were there. It varies. There are periods of great high intensity. There are periods of watchful of watchfulness and waiting uh, for the next offensive to come. And there are moments of personal and, and, uh, and local tragedy and the, the experiences too vary. And, uh, all of them can d describe with great detail, the, the hardship of living through, uh, things like the battle of Kapyong, where you had the Chinese soldiers involved in that offensive, uh, as, as close as 20 feet away and having to have, uh, artillery fire brought down onto your own position to, to, uh, to clear it off and to give breathing space. Uh, I've spoken to a medic who uh, 
was you know seeing people in the in the flower of their youth cut down and uh, that stuck with him and the experience of sending you know having sending down someone on a stretcher who he knew wouldn't wouldn't survive uh but he just couldn't leave him on that hill and so see there's a lot of these memories that stick around and have a an indelible and, and long-term formative impact on not just their their service during that war, but for the rest of their careers, if they decide to stay in the military. And the other thing I'll say, and I, I'm not sure if we'll have much of a chance to say about it, but the other thing is that many years later, a, a fair proportion of, of these veterans who I've spoken to have had the opportunity to return to Korea and to see the, um, uh, the potential that uh, their service and their sacrifice helped to help to fulfill because when they went to Korea, it was an utter ruin. People were in desperate poverty. They were on the side of the roads, uh, you know, looking for, for whatever sort of uh, food and shelter they could secure. The cities and villages were, were pitted and mortared and bombed, bombed out. And now it's a glittering jewel of, uh, of the, of, you know, G20 economies. Uh, it's a, cultural export and uh, the people of Korea to hear the veterans uh, tell it from their encounters uh, with the veterans, uh, with people in South Korea is one of, uh, of great gratitude. And so they see in their service, not just the, uh, the horrors of it, uh, which stays with them, but also that which uh, their service helped to, to foster. And I want to really emphasize that last point that uh, Andrew made. You know, I've been uh, fortunate to be able to meet with uh, Korean veterans throughout my entire career. You know, starting as a junior officer in the Second Battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, Capyong veterans would come in on a, a regular basis and regale us with their uh, their stories. Um, but what for me is the most uh, uh, poignant and uh, and uh, pointed is just that point that Andrew made about the pride uh, that they see. And I've had the opportunity to meet uh, Korean War veterans as they've come over to Korea and I've met them here. And seeing just what a, a vibrant, dynamic uh, society that South Korea has become, it puts their sacrifice into context and, and so that they know it was worth it. They know they made a difference. And I like to use this analogy when I talk to our troops in, in various uh, parts of the world and telling them that they matter. And I want them to come back in 40, 50, 60 years to see the difference that they made uh, to the uh, the country that they're working in. That, that's uh, that's just a really poignant point. And I'm sure being there right now and, and looking around makes it even more present for you. Um, with that, I, I could seg into the role that you played uh, yourself, General, because uh, the Korean War armistice was signed 70 years ago, as we said. It's resulted in a stalemate. Um, the 38th parallel was still the dividing line between the North, which became part of the communist bloc, and then the South. Uh, so that border has always been militarized ever since. Um, and General Air, you were there as the deputy commander of the United Nations Command in 2018-2019. Uh, can you tell us about your experiences and also maybe just give us the bigger picture of the role that the UN and Canada has played there since uh, the end of the armistice? No, I, I sure will. Um, so for me, it was a fascinating experience. I was the first uh, non-U.S. Uh, deputy commander of the United Nations Command since it was stood up in, in 1950. And so from that perspective, it was uh, uh, it was very much a privilege to be, uh, to be the one selected. The United Nations Command was the command under which uh, all, all uh, nations uh, – 
fought the uh, fought against the communist aggression in the uh, in the Korean War. After the war, it was the command uh, that oversaw the armistice uh, agreement uh, from the perspective of the South. And as such, it, underneath it, it had the uh, United Nations Command Military Armistice Commission. Over the course of the uh, the next number of decades, the uh, as as South Korea really developed and started to exercise its own sovereignty, in 1978, the uh, the Combined Forces Command with the Republic Republic of Korea and the U.S. was formed, and that became the the war fighting command should hostilities break out again. And United Nations Command was was relegated to the background. Uh, it was still responsible for the. Uh, maintenance of the uh, of the armistice um, and over the course of the next number of decades it, it atrophied so in about the 2014 time frame the uh, u.s commander in theater who had three hats uh, commander of u.s forces korea commander of uh, the the combined uh, forces command and com uh, commander of united nations command um, put in place an initiative to revitalize uh, United Nations Command. And over the next number of years, uh, it, it grew um, uh, and they put a, uh, an ask out if we would provide a deputy commander and Canada said yes. And so my time here was really focused on revitalizing the command, uh, uh, revitalizing its role, its structure. Uh, it continues to be the command that monitors uh, and enforces the, uh, the military, um, the, the, the armistice, uh, but it's also the home for um, sending states. Uh, so states uh, in time of conflict that, uh, that provide forces uh, to the, uh, uh, the Korean Peninsula. And so a lot of my time was focused on, you know, one, uh, maintenance of the armistice, uh, two, uh, ensuring the command was properly structured, resourced uh, for, for its tasks, and three, on exercise, practicing that role of bringing in uh, forces from around the world to, uh, to stand up and help uh, defend the Republic of Korea again against, uh, against aggression. How would you see the situation on the Korean Peninsula today? Because I think for a while, uh, you know, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and there was all the talk about the peace dividend and, and you know, the Cold War was over. But now with what's going on in Ukraine, we can see the Cold War isn't really over. So how is it in Korea? What What's the situation like there today? So since the um, Berlin Wall fell, there's been numerous cycles of hope, of, of um uh, increased communication with the with the north, followed by escalations of confrontation and increased tensions. And you have to remember that the aim of North Korea, their overarching aim, is regime survival, the re, uh, survival of the Kim regime. And the most existential challenge or threat that they face is not from without; it's from within. It's it's their own people rising up against. Uh, uh, against the Kim regime. And consequently, uh, the regime does much to keep itself isolated, uh, to, to keep its population uh, isolated, to, um, to, to convince them uh, that the outside world is against them, especially the United States, especially the West and, and South Korea. Um, and to them, one of the most dangerous pieces or one of the most dangerous aspects of South Korea is it's an, a shining example of what the Korean people can become in terms of freedom, in terms of a vibrant democracy. And, and so, yes, they, uh, they very much 
try to keep themselves isolated. And so the normalization of relations between the two Koreas is going to be very, very problematic uh, just because of that threat that uh, that North Korea, uh, the Kim uh, regime sees uh, coming from the South in, in terms of the ideas of freedom and the hope it could give uh, their, their own population. For a dictator, uh, the most dangerous uh, human emotion is hope. And uh, the, the, the regime there is very wary of it. So you don't see a path toward demilitarization of the border or normalization of relations between the two Koreas anytime soon? Well, you could say I'm a pessimist, but I would argue I'm more of a realist. And, and given the uh, conflicting uh, national interests of the, the two, I do not see in the short term a path to normalization. All right, I'm, I'm going to quickly wrap up because we're getting short on time. I just want to ask you both, um, maybe the general first and then Andrew, why is it important or is it important for Canada to continue to have a presence in Korea? And if so, what is Canada's role in Korea, Korea the way you see it? From my perspective, our role here is to help maintain that uh, that stability and security, uh, working uh, both with United Nations Command and its subordinate uh, element, United Nations Command Military Armistice Commission, uh, through the provision of staff here. The importance of this uh, this region to global stability and security, and consequently our national prosperity cannot be understated. You've got three of the largest economies uh, with the with the U.S. Uh, greatly involved in this region. Uh, you've got multiple uh, nuclear armed powers. You've got some of the uh, largest um, militaries uh, in, in the world. And so if conflict were to break out in this region, it would have global impact and quite significant impact on our own uh, national prosperity. And, and thus, you know, doing our part uh, to maintain that peace and stability here continues to be of great importance. And Andrew? I don't think I could uh, add much to what the general said. Um, there, there's uh, always an interest in Canada of uh, maintaining, uh, you know, peace with our with our uh, our allies and, and like minded countries. And I think that uh, uh, as long as there is that desire, um, there's there's a real benefit to having a presence and uh, and being present for the conversation. We don't. We certainly don't want to return to what was like at the uh, at the. Uh, outset of the Korean War, we really didn't have much of an eye on what was going on in Korea. Uh, it's it, we are in much better state right now uh, than we were uh, at that outset uh, in terms of knowing what's going on in the peninsula and in the region with our allies. So I think that uh, no, I don't have a whole lot to add there. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Is there anything else, any final comments that either of you would would like to make before we sign off? Well, probably, but I know the general has a hard out, so I'm not going to I'm not going to go on at great length. <laughs> no, Kate, I will, I'll jump in here with a, a couple of, uh, of lessons and maybe a historical analogy that we can apply to the future. Um, one of the big lessons that I think from a military we need to take away from uh, this conflict is the need for readiness. And we saw forces being put into the Korean War at the beginning that weren't ready. Uh, they didn't have the training, the endurance, uh, uh, forces that were allocated to other other uh, tasks, uh, especially on the American side, uh, from occupation duty in Japan to fighting in Korea. Uh, they were not ready for it. And so for us, ensuring that, uh, that our forces are ready for conflict is uh, front and center of, of my mind as we, uh, as we continue to build the Canadian Armed Forces of the future. The other lesson I think we can apply 
directly to the current uh, situation in Ukraine with uh, Russia's brutal war of aggression is if um, if the fighting was to, were to stop tomorrow, I believe we would have a frozen conflict akin to what we have here in um in the Koreas, on the Korean Peninsula, and in lessons in terms of how to maintain an armistice, uh, the necessity of continuing to uh, uh, to ensure that uh, the side that uh, that we support, in this case Ukraine, uh, can thrive as a democracy, can build up to ensure that it can deter aggression uh, from the uh, from the other side, and so many uh, many lessons that are applicable to uh, today's times. Lots to think about there. Thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us in this podcast. And of course, I wish you the best, General Aaron, your continued uh, continued role in the armed forces. And of course, Andrew, in helping everyone to remember through the War Museum, uh, the, the wars and the sacrifices of Canadians. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Kate. The Stories Behind the History podcast is produced by Canada's History Society. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe to Canada's History Magazine? To subscribe, or simply to find out more about Canada's History Society, visit us at canadashistory.ca. Our theme music is the Red River Jig, performed by Alex Kusterok from his album Métis Fiddling for Dancing. I'm Kate Jamet. Thanks for joining me.